What is the biggest, most important you've made, promise you've made in your entire life? What's the big promise? Well, I have a big reminder right here that I put on my finger every day. For most of us, it's something like that. Our wedding vows. Made that promise before God and many witnesses over 35 years ago now. I remember it like it was yesterday. Big day, big event. It's a big promise. But even our biggest promises pale in comparison to the promises of God. One of the biggest, most important promises God makes in the Bible is in the passage we're going to look at today, 2 Samuel chapter 7 in your Bibles. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 with me. And here God makes a promise or a covenant with David that has great importance and relevance for us as Christians. While it is true we learn in this chapter about the promise God makes, it is also true that we learn about the God who makes such a promise. Four points in my sermon today. Point number one, the Lord postpones building a house. Verses 1 through 7 of 2 Samuel 7. Point two, the Lord graciously builds His house. Verses 8 to 11. Point three, the Lord's house is guaranteed forever. Verses 12 to 17. And point four, marveling at the Lord's promise. Point number one, the Lord postpones building a house. Look at verse one of 2 Samuel 7 with me. Now by the time we come to 2 Samuel 7, it seems that the Lord has been moving events and people inevitably and irresistibly to this point in history. We have apparently come to the culmination and climax of the events that began dramatically over 400 years before with the redemption of God's people from slavery in Egypt, with the exodus. God brought them out, separated them from Pharaoh, removed them from slavery, redeemed them from the slavery that they were in, and set them on a path towards the promised land. Because of their sin and rebellion, they wandered through the wilderness desert for 40 years. Finally came to the promised land where they fell into a cycle of sin and God would redeem them through a judge and then they would sin some more. But now, after centuries of conflict with the enemies in this land and the failed reign of King Saul, the Lord has established a different kind of king on the throne of Israel. A king chosen by the Lord. A king after God's own heart. It's King David. And David has brought unity to the twelve families or twelve tribes of Israel. They are all united under His authority. For the first time since Israel entered the Promised Land, the city of Jerusalem has been captured and David has made it Israel's capital city. And called it by the name, the city of David, the name of its conqueror. That brings us to chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Lord, or rather, now when the king lived in his house, 
And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Since capturing the city of Jerusalem, things have been pretty peaceful and serene for David. Verse 1 says the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. It's likely David has not had this kind of rest during his entire adult life. He has been on the run from King Saul for, for over a decade. Once he became king of Judah, he still had a civil war to deal with with the other tribes. And now they have all come together. He is their king. And peace and quiet have filled his days. But something is bothering David. While David is resting peacefully in his new house in Jerusalem, made of the finest materials available, a house fit for a king, you might say, David, who immediately upon capturing the city of Jerusalem made it Israel's political capital, has also now made it the center of Israel's religious worship by bringing the Ark of God up from the city of Hebron to Jerusalem. The Ark of God, a chest overlaid with gold that was within, the, with, within it was held the two tablets of stone that contained the, 12, the Ten Commandments. In it was the rod of Aaron. In it is a jar of manna. And on top of it is a golden lid, the mercy seat, crowned with two cherubim. And above the cherubim is the place where the very presence of God in Israel dwells. The ark of God was inside the tabernacle of Israel in a small room called the Holy of Holies. It was a 15 by 15 foot room inside a tent where only the high priest of Israel could only come one day each year and make sacrifice for the sins of the people on the day of atonement on Yom Kippur. David had brought the ark to Jerusalem from Hebron and during that journey, recorded just one chapter before in 2 Samuel 6, God taught David and Israel lessons regarding joy, holiness, humility. But in bringing the ark of Jerusalem, David was saying that the center of the nation of Israel must also center on the worship of God. And that worship must be the heartbeat of His people and it must happen in the city that is at the center and core of Israel. It must be in Jerusalem. Yet David is bothered by the contradiction, contradiction that exists before his very eyes. You see, David eats and sleeps and lives in this beautiful house that was made for him. But the very presence of God, the ark of God, sits inside a well-worn tent, inside a curtain, really, just a short, short distance from his house in the city. The great God of Israel dwells in a tent while the king of his people dwells in a lavish home. David thinks it's a great idea to build a beautiful house for God, a, a permanent home for the ark of God, a place where the worship of the nation can come and be centered. And he runs this idea past his spiritual advisor, past the prophet Nathan. 
it seems Nathan didn't have to think twice about it. He agrees with the reasonableness of David's proposal and gives him the green light. Notice here, however, that there is no indication in the Scripture that either David or Nathan had taken this plan to the Lord in prayer. It seems they just reasoned it out. I mean, doesn't common sense tell you that it's a great idea? It's a reasonable plan. And they assumed it would be fine with God. After all, they are God's chosen king. And Nathan, God's chosen prophet. Surely they know what God's intentions are, right? Well, they were wrong. Look at verse 4, 2 Samuel 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Well, it's as if the Lord is saying, What makes you think I want a house? What makes you think I want a temple? I never asked for a house, God says. Let's think about this. If God wanted a house, do you think He could build one? Do you think He needs David's help to build a house? Well, David and Nathan have taken the Lord for granted here. As if the Lord is some kind of a domesticated God. He's a tame God, only present to go along with the plans that I formulate and want to do. Well, David and Nathan have just rediscovered the fact that He's the Almighty God. That He does not respond to their whims and their desires. Point number two. The Lord graciously builds His house. Verses 8 to 11. Follow along as I read these verses. And as I read, I want you to notice the word I. And notice who is the active one. Who is taking action here and who's receiving the blessings and the benefits. These are the words of the Lord Himself given to Nathan the prophet to be delivered in King David starting in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Did you notice who the giver of grace is here? 
and who the receiver of it is? There's one word to describe what the Lord has done for David here and what he will do for David. That word is grace. It's grace. First notice there is the experience of grace in David's life up to this point. God's grace is seen in the Lord's choice of David in the last part of verse 8. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. Notice the Lord doesn't even give him credit for tending or shepherding the sheep. He says you're just following the sheep, David. It's the picture of the sheep wandering the hills and David trailing along. But God says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. From the lowest of lowest occupations to the highest of positions in the nation. The Lord's grace is seen in God's presence with David. In the first part of verse 9, God says, And I have been with you wherever you went. And the Lord's grace is seen in God's power exercised for David in the middle of verse 9. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. God's power exercised on behalf of David. The next emphasis seen in this section runs from the end of verse 9 through verses 10 and 11. And it is promised grace. It is future grace. It is grace regarding the things that are yet to happen. First, God graciously promises David that he will have a great name at the end of verse 9. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Who else did God promise would have a great name? Abraham. Abraham. The promise to Abraham. And now God says the same to David. Second, God graciously promises David that he will care for his people Israel. In verses 10 and the first part of 11, God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And third, last, God promises David protection. In the middle of verse 11, he says, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And then there's a fourth and climactic promise at the end of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. God says, you're not building me a house. Rather, David, I will make you a house. Now, there are two kinds of houses being discussed here. There's a play on words going on. God is using this to make a point. The kind of house David wants to make is made of fine wood and stone. It has walls and a roof. It's a physical building which would contain the ark of God. It is a temple. In contrast, the kind of house God is going to build for David is a collection of people, as in a family or a dynasty, a line of royal kings to rule and reign over God's people. Now, we don't use the word house very often that way today. The best modern example is Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Queen Elizabeth is of the house or family of Windsor. 
her son Charles and her grandsons, William and Harry, and her great-grandson, now George, are all her descendants and are also of the house or family of Windsor. So here, the Lord is saying that the kind of house or family line or dynasty that he is building is the family line of King David, of his descendants on the throne. But why is the Lord so insistent that he will build David a house and not the other way around? Why can't David build God a beautiful building to contain the ark of God? Well, I think there's two reasons. First, in 1 Chronicles 22 and 28, David says that God won't tell Solomon, David tells Solomon that Solomon's going to build this house, but God will not let David build it because David is a warrior. There is blood on his hands. But I think there's something else going on here too. And it fits in with this idea of God's graciousness towards David as well as the surrounding nations and their gods. Think back to the Exodus. Remember the ten plagues? God was drawing great contrast between His graciousness and His power towards Israel as opposed to the gods of Pharaoh, the false gods that lived in the land of Egypt and that the people worshipped falsely. And this has been the pattern throughout the period of the judges and the period in the land. God is drawing a contrast between the way He operates, the grace that He shows, the justice that He brings, and the gods of the Canaanites the false gods of the Canaanites. Well, there is evidence in the ancient world that it was common in those days for a king to build a temple to their false gods and then receive in return a promise from the gods regarding a long and prosperous reign or great victories in battle. You see, the point is clear. The gods can be bought. Good deeds like temples built to false gods are supposedly rewarded with long life and victories and long rule. They are earned benefits or wages for good deeds done. It's not that a temple in Jerusalem is unimportant. It will be built. Solomon will build it. But it must wait for the proper time. For the Lord does not want David or his people to misunderstand. The God of the Bible is not like the pagan gods. In not allowing David to build him a house, the Lord is displaying His grace to David without regard to anything David can or will do for him. Our Lord cannot be bought. He cannot be bargained with. He cannot be influenced by our supposedly good deeds, our good works, our buildings that we put up for Him. God gives grace to His people not because they are mighty or many or well-behaved or give Him bribes, but because He loves them and chooses to display His grace through them. So too with David. David may have had good motives in wanting to build a house, to build a temple for God, but the Lord will have nothing to do with it. Here the Lord reviews the past experience of grace he's poured out to David and talks about the future grace he will provide for him. 
and make sure David understands it is by his grace alone that these things are happening. Well, what will be the characteristics of this house, of of this dynasty, of this family of David? That brings us to point number three. The Lord's house is guaranteed forever. Verses 12 to 16. Follow along with me as I read. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. What's the point? God is saying this house of David, this dynasty is inevitable. It is unstoppable. It cannot be defeated. It is forever. He says it in three different ways. In verses 12 and 13, God is saying that death cannot stop it. In verses 14 and 15, God is saying that sin cannot stop it. And in verse 16, God is saying time will not outrun it. The first way He says it is inevitable is in verses 12 and 13. Death cannot stop it. Verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David will die. And when King David dies, God will raise up an offspring, a seed, A word that refers both to an individual like David's immediate son Solomon who will build the temple but also to a line of kings, to descendants of David who will rule. This line will culminate in Jesus Christ. An offspring of David. Death cannot stop this promise. The second way God says it is is inevitable is in verses 14 and 15 where he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. God says, when he commits iniquity. You see, the Lord knows that Solomon is going to sin. The Lord knows that the kings who will follow after Solomon for the next 400 years will be sinners. And some of them will sin grievously and horribly against God and His temple. Solomon himself lets foreign idols into the land because of his many foreign wives. 
And when they sin, the Lord says he will discipline and punish the kings in the line of David. But the Lord's steadfast, faithful, covenant love will ultimately not depart from the line of King David. Sin will not win. Sin may bring disaster and judgment on an individual king, but it will not overthrow the promised, inevitable, unstoppable Davidic dynasty. It will not happen. The third way God says it is inevitable is in verse 16, which tells us that time will never outrun this promise. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The point is that God will build the house of David. The Lord will do it through David's family, through David's offspring, through the descendants of David. He will build and establish a house or a dynasty that will rule and reign forever and ever and ever over his people. Here God has chosen and has announced that it is by this one man, through David, that the rule over God's kingdom will be brought to completion, that it will be realized, that it will be fulfilled. God's plan and purpose from all eternity goes through King David. Now let's talk very practically here for a minute. There are only two apparent ways God can do this. One way is to keep an unending and unbroken line of David's sons and grandsons and great-grandsons and so on down through the generations sitting on the throne of Israel. This ongoing line of succession lasted for a very long time, for over 400 years. But it ended when the Babylonians came, bringing God's judgment upon Jerusalem for its idolatry in 587 B.C. and burned Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took the people into exile, and executed their king and his offspring. That pretty much put an end to that option. It's off the table. But the other alternative the one that was part of God's plan, the one God chose as part of his plan to fulfill his covenant promise with David is this. Rather than have a continuing and ongoing line of descendants sitting on the throne, God's plan was for a single individual descendant of David to arise. One who will sit on the throne of David for all eternity. That single individual descendant of David is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. The New Testament itself begins in the Gospel of Matthew with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, Jesus Christ. As you go through the New Testament, 40 times, at least 40 times, you find references to Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise to David. It's important we understand who is our king. You see, being born of a virgin, having been conceived of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is God. 
So as king, he will live and rule and reign forever. But he is also the God-man. He is a physical descendant of David through his natural mother Mary. When the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would bear a child by the power of the Holy Spirit, the angel left no doubt about who this baby would be. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is also the legal descendant of David through his father Joseph and thus has a legal right to inherit the throne of David. Listen to the words of the angel spoken to Joseph as he debated divorcing Mary. For Joseph knew he was not the natural father of the baby growing inside of her. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It is through one man, through David, that the rule over God's kingdom flows will be brought to completion, that it will be realized, that it will be fulfilled. And it is through one man, David's royal descendant, Jesus Christ, that the many are blessed, that we are blessed. Well, how did David respond to all this? Point four, marveling at the Lord's promise. Follow along as I read David's prayer starting... In verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people, making Himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. 
and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. What do you see here? It's dripping. David's prayer is dripping with humility before his God. David understands the grace that God has shown him. Deeper than even David can understand. David praises the greatness of God in verse 22. You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. You see David humble himself as unworthy. You see David praise the Lord for redeeming his people from slavery. You see David have great faith that the Lord will keep his promise in verse 29. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. You see, David was a shepherd tending sheep in a pasture. God called him to be a king. In 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul urges us to think about what we are to do as Christians because of what Christ has done for us, because of the grace He has shown for us. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, there were a lot of shepherds. People of low status before God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, God condescends to us. He comes down to us. The shepherd boy became king. The carpenter's son sits on his throne. It is to the Lord Jesus that we have been called. Called to come to Him for the spiritual bread that brings eternal life. Called to come to Him for the spiritual drink that will satisfy our thirst for all eternity. Called to serve Jesus out of love, joy, and gratitude. For He is King of kings and Lord of lords, whose throne is established 
forever as the son of David. We are called to come before the Lord with worship and humble dependence on Him. We learn today that God is gracious, that He is steadfast, that He is loving, that He is faithful, that He keeps His promises, that He is trustworthy. And while He is all of these things, we often fail to keep our promises to one another, to God. We fail to keep our promises to our husband, our wife, our children, our friends. We don't love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. But God sent His Son for us so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness in Him by trusting in our Savior and King, Jesus, the Son of David. He is the King of Israel. He is our King. The question for us is, is He my King? Is He my King? Can you say Jesus is your King personally? Do I glory in the fact that I am His subject? That I am His servant? Have you embraced Him as King? Have you embraced Him as Lord, as Master, as ruler over your life? We've read this morning, God has established a house. That house of David culminates in King Jesus. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And God's king and God's kingdom are unstoppable and inevitable. And if the big promise to David is so sure in Christ, we surely, as the Lord's people and as the subjects of our king, can trust all his smaller promises as well as we face the trials and difficulties and temptations of this life. He promised us he will never leave us or forsake us. He has us by the hand. He will not let us go. He is our Savior and our King. We praise Him for it. Let's pray. Almighty God, grant that we may remember who we are that we are but pilgrims in this world. And no allure of this world, no, no wealth, no power, no worldly wisdom, pray Father, would blind our eyes to our King, Jesus Christ. I pray this morning, Lord, we would direct our eyes and all of our senses towards our Savior and King, Jesus the son of David, that we would always fix them on him. And may nothing hinder us. May we serve you, Father, with each new day until 
after many days have passed, or maybe even today, and this life is over, and we reach the goal which you have called us for, to be with you, to see Jesus face to face and live with him, our King forever and ever in his kingdom in glory. I pray, Lord, that we as your people would not take you for granted, that we would not forget you, but that, Father, we would come to the foot of the cross each and every day to worship before our King, to acknowledge that we need him, that we are sinners and that we fall short, and it is only through the grace that is ours in Christ that we might live. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.